Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. You're listening to Theater and College Hoops. I'm Subi riding semi-solo. Yeah, I think that's the best way to describe it. Semi-solo. No Taylor today, but we have an awesome, awesome interview for you later in this episode with a familiar face, someone that you've seen on ESPN. You've heard on ESPN. You've heard on radio. And it was one of the most insightful, intriguing, informative interviews that we've had in quite some time. And I use all of those I adjectives as it relates to everything that this interview subject told us uh, unrelated to college basketball, his career trajectory, his, his journey through media, and also him being an American hero. That is not in jest. I'm not saying that sarcastically. He genuinely is. And he has uh, quite a father-in-law that you'll hear about later in this interview, but it was a lot of fun and I cannot wait to bring it to you. Uh, I wouldn't even blame you if you fast forwarded through these segments just to get to that interview. So looking forward to that. Appreciate him for spending some time with us because there was no Taylor. Otherwise I'd be lonely as hell on this rainy Chicago day curled up under my avocado blanket with a, a cup of hot tea. So thank you to uh, this interview subject that we had on and you'll you'll hear from him in just a little bit. We're brought to you by Belly Up Media. Go download, subscribe, rate, and review us on whichever device it is that you use. Your college hooper of the day, it's Elliot Williams, the Memphis native. He went to Duke, then came back to Memphis. Uh, the 6'4 guard, great player. I really enjoyed him. I think he got drafted by the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, but Elliot Williams was a lot of fun and one of the more potent, lethal players during his era. Very underrated. Very underrated was Elliot Williams. So he is your college hooper of the day. Check out the website at theaterandcollegehoops.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at CBB Theater. You should also follow me at Subi232 to find out where the feed is and make sure to follow Taylor at Taylor Dammel. Let's open the curtains.
Eight to shoot. Paul, the runner! Loose ball! It's good! With 4.4 to go! Shannon! Don't want to foul! Shannon! From the corner! And it's over! Gonzaga! The flipper still fits! <laughs> All right, we got an awesome interview. I know I said that earlier, but we have such a great interview coming up for you here in a couple minutes. We sat down with Chris Spatola, college basketball analyst for ESPN, ACC Network. He's on Sirius XM Radio. He does such a tremendous job, but what a blast this really was. Chris was a a real joy to sit down with. We talk everything from his time at Duke as a coach. And then even before that, his time at West Point, we dive into some stories uh, about how he gets through the media and how he, he was worked his way up and put in the hours and put in the time. We talk about leadership. This really was one of the most fun interviews that I've done. And I got a lot out of it. Honestly, it was one of those interviews where I'm listening to his answers and I'm saying to myself, Hmm, I should probably apply a lot of this to my life if I haven't already. So Chris, thanks so much for jumping on and and joining us. I cannot wait to bring this to you and for you guys to hear it here in just a little bit. But before we do that, of course, the last couple of days, this entire week has been rocked by the details coming out of Tuscaloosa. And uh, now Brandon Miller's name has come in to the fold here. And and two days ago, there was court testimonials saying that in so many words, and I, I say in so many words because words actually matter quite a bit in, in a legal proceeding, but the court testimonial, I think what people on Twitter just gravitated to was uh, he delivered the gun that killed Jamea Janae Harris, who, by the way, needs to be number one, top of mind for everyone. She is the victim here, a young mother um, who lost her life in a senseless, senseless act of violence. And while I'm on the topic of Jamea Janae Harris, I think other there's more court testimonials saying that this was a verbal altercation that escalated to her death. What are we doing? That's the most maddening, sad, depressing, disappointing part. And it's not lost on me that she is a woman having a, uh, a, a conversation with men and her life is lost. It's not lost on me and it shouldn't be lost on you either. I want you to take a second and ponder that not trying to, to lecture you or, or make you make you think about, uh, how you could impact this or anything like that, but there is something there. All right. And it's incredibly, incredibly sad that a young woman has lost her life, uh, based on what I'm reading in the court testimonials, which was a verbal altercation. So first and foremost, we need to keep her in mind. A young, a young boy, uh, lost her mother. And again, I can't reiterate it enough. Senseless act of violence. I don't have much more to offer than that. Because everyone wants to get their hot takes off. Everyone apparently uh, is is now pivoting from being a, a disease expert. They're all doctors. Now they're all lawyers. So at the end of the day, I don't know what's going to happen. We do genuinely just have to wait and see. It costs nothing to tweet nothing. 
It costs nothing to just hang tight um, on both sides. All right. And this is, again, a very sensitive, very sensitive subject. Um, a life is lost. Now other lives are are looking at jail time for who knows how long. All right. And if that's the case, fine. You can be a hardo and say, who cares? Throw them away for life. Uh, but I have enough sense, I like to think, and and enough uh, thoughts where that that's in and own in and of its own self uh, sad, where a life has just been thrown away uh, and wasted, right? So I would just urge you guys to take a step back and just let the court and the legal proceedings play out before you make a fool of yourselves. Maybe I've already done that here. Who knows? But I do know what I do know is that two days ago, the court of public opinion and Twitter was vilifying Brandon Miller. When the people that matter the most, the cops and the DA and those in the legal sector, haven't charged him with anything. I'm not sticking up for Brandon Miller here, okay? But these are facts. He has not been charged with anything. Now, if you want to argue whether or not he should be suspended, have at it. I think that's a fool's errand in my opinion. Maybe I should be covering it. I don't know. This is my podcast, though. I don't want to do that. I don't want to waste my breath on that, all right? Because you're not going to change anyone's opinions. You're going to have you're going to have people saying that he should never touch a basketball again. You're going to have people saying, well, why would you suspend someone if they were a witness to a crime and nothing illegal and no charges have been brought on them. You're not going to change anyone's minds. All I would ask is that we just take a step back, let everything unfold. Because again, two days ago, there were a lot of people calling for Brandon Miller uh, to be to be in, in some sort of trouble. And then yesterday, his law team, and I suppose that's ex exactly what you would expect his legal team to do. But they came out with a statement that I think you should all read. Um, so at the end of the day, you can you can say, well, this is exactly what the legal team was going to do. They're going to spin it in favor of their client. Uh, two days ago, people were saying that Brandon Miller uh, knowingly brought a gun, um, knowing and, and, and knowing that he had that gun was going to be used for nefarious actions. I don't know. Uh, but what I would urge yet again is to just take a step back and remember that it doesn't cost you anything to tweet anything. If, if anything, just fire off a text or something to your friends or, or family if you want to get it off your chest. Uh, regardless, an all-around incredibly sad situation uh, unfolding in Tuscaloosa. Again, worth repeating, remember the name, Jamea Janae Harris. Um, let's go ahead now, though, and get to our interview with Chris Spatola. What a blast it was, and excited to bring it to you on the other side of this message. Hey, everyone. It's Ryan from No Credentials Required to talk to you about one of our newest partners at Philly Up Sports, SeatGeek. Yeah, live sports is great on television, but the feeling of being at the arena is a priceless experience. That's why our friends at SeatGeek are there to help you find the best tickets at the best prices. Not only can you get tickets to sporting events, but you can also get tickets to concerts, comedy shows, musicals, and more. Search for your desired event now at SeatGeek.com, enter promo code BellyUpSports at checkout, and you save 20 bucks off your first purchase. SeatGeek. Life's an event. We have the tickets. 
Folks, buckle up because our next guest has such an impressive resume that this intro might take a minute or two, <laughs> but we are thrilled to welcome to Theater and College Hoops, former starting guard at Army, one of the best scorers the Patriot League has seen, a national champion while on Duke's coaching staff, a decorated captain in the U.S. Army, the Joint Service Commendation Medal winner, and college basketball analyst for ESPN and Sirius XM. A little bit out of breath here, but we got Chris Spatola joining us. Chris, thank you so much. How are you? I'm doing well, Subi. I'm doing a lot better after that intro. Uh, to that exhausting hearing all of that, but I appreciate you, man. You're too kind. No, like I said, very extensive resume, very <laughs> impressive resume, and we're going to dive into a lot of that. But first, before I do that, I, I, I started following you. Chris on Twitter. And I think your latest tweet, you were interviewing Jabari Rice there down at Texas and talking about his pump fake. I want to see how in lockstep we are to start this off. Uh, so I'm around early thirties. Okay. Who, who do you think I would say has the best pump fake in college basketball during my era? I suppose, because the first thing that came Great to question. mind was this player. Great question. Um, I have no idea. That's a that's a very unique question. Who is it? You got to tell me. For some reason, well, I shouldn't say for some reason because it was a lethal pump fake. But you remember Sam Young? Of for course, Pitt. yeah. <laughs> that guy somehow. I mean, you could you could barely slide a credit card under his feet, but he wasn't yeah. traveling. No, you know it's funny, um, and I've heard Billis make that comparison, and I think it's incredibly apt. And it, it's so funny, dude. When I was playing, there was like it was my first or second year at army and I had kind of come to making a shot fake, not similar to Jabari's, but in the same vein where I was kind of coming out of my stance and it was an elongated shot fake. And one of my coaches said, you know, you, you shouldn't be doing it that, that way because you've got to stay in an athletic posture and you're coming out of your stance. And, and of course being the good you know, follower that I was, I, I kind of took him at his word. And and I really hadn't seen a shot fake like that until Sam Young. It's a great comparison. And then until Jabari, and it's amazing how effective it's been. It has been. And look, you got to find it, find a way to create any space that you can. You parlayed it into a wonderful career, uh, <laughs> not only on, on the court, but coaching as well. We'll dive into all of that. But Chris, before I do that, the, one of the main reasons why you're here is because of Dallin Cuff, why you're on this program, that is. Yeah. All right. And keep in mind, at the end of this, I'm going to ask you the same thing I asked Dallin. Who would you want or who would you refer to come on to theater and college hoops? But what I want to do is just play exactly what Dallin said when I asked him that question. All right. Chris Matola, who I cover, I do a lot of serious ACC work with and stuff at ESPN, um, was, was a captain in the Army, You know, played at Army, 1,000-point score there, uh, coached with Duke uh, in their 2010 team as an assistant. And uh, he's just a really smart, interesting, funny guy. And I think when you ask good questions and ask for different stories, he'll deliver. And you let him let him to let him wax poetic and pontificate like I did. Uh, you'll be impressed and, ha and have some fun with him because he's seen he's seen a lot, man. You do a couple tours of duty and you know in, in service, and you, you've won a championship. You cover coach the Olympics in '08. Um, you've, you've, he's been around the block in a bunch of different ways, and he's also just a really funny, smart guy. <laughs> that's my guy that's my guy let me get your thoughts the pressure's on me to ask the right questions but i want to hear your feedback and, and no, your reaction there's no pressure um first of all the respect is mutual 
I don't pontificate and bloviate quite as long as Dallin does. Uh, I, I try to keep it a little bit more succinct. But uh, no, he's incredibly bright. I think we relate on that level. I think we both think we're smarter than we probably are. Uh, but we enjoy basking in what we think is uh, a higher intelligence. And um, he's incredibly kind. I have to tell you, dude, and this is, I mean this generally, but certainly specific to Dallin. You know, I'm not the most gifted individual, but what I have found in life is if I can surround myself with talented people, other successful people, or get myself involved with talented, successful organizations, I'm going to come out looking a lot better. And uh, so that's kind of, it It raises the tide of Spatola. And so Dallin is a good example of that. I have found in our professional interactions that anything he and I do together, A, I end up looking better, but the product ends up being better. And uh, and so you're this, you're a prime example. Uh, they, you know, you said, come on, would you come on and talk to me? I said, well, if I'm around Subi, I, I, it's got to be good. And so let's make this happen. You're making me blush. Let me ask you though, are you okay if I take creative liberty and name this show or name this episode Tide of Spatola? That's <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. Yeah, you do you name it what you want. Um you know, maybe not that jerk off Spatola. That I probably wouldn't want you to go in there, but uh no, it's true man. I'm telling you, you got to I think self-awareness is is something I learned that's an important quality to have uh in anybody and you know, look, it's uh, I know we'll get there, but it's a, a big reason why the United States. I, I couldn't have been a cadet. I shouldn't have been a cadet. But, you know, ha, that environment and being around the people that I was around certainly lifted my tide. And, and being in the U.S. military, it, it did the same. And then to, to go to Duke and work, obviously, with Coach K, but with the coaches that I worked with there and to be at Duke University. Um, was was exceptional. And then to be with ESPN, which uh, is, is certainly a leader in its field. So it's kind of been the, the strategy here, brother, uh, throughout my life. It's been a blast following all of your your pit stops and, and your career trajectory. And let's start from the beginning here, Chris. I've had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of former players. And what I'm always curious to know is the recruiting process and their decision-making process, because a lot of, a lot of viewers like myself we weren't we weren't fortunate enough or probably didn't work hard enough to get to a D1 level and so I'm always curious to know what went into a certain player going to a certain school for you specifically what about army uh intrigued you and take us into your decision making and recruiting process yeah it's it's a great question i um i was not by any means interested in being a cadet i had never thought about any of the academies uh throughout my, my young, young life. And, but what I did want to be was a basketball player and I wanted to be a division one basketball player. And, you know, if you look at me, Subi, I'm not much to look at, you know, I'm barely six feet tall. I'm about uh, when I, at that time I was probably about 145 pounds. So I wasn't highly recruited. Um, I was coached by my dad in high school. So I had a good understanding of the game and I was tough. You know, I, I, that's again, how do you, how do you make it seem like you're more gifted than you really are? Well, toughness and competitiveness and, and just playing hard were, were sort of some of the gifts I had. And I was at a, uh, an AAU event and uh, a member of Dino Gaudio's staff, uh, who was the coach at Army at the time, saw me play there, a guy named Marcus Perez. And he mentioned it to Dino. Uh, I don't think Dino gave it much thought. 
uh, but they brought me on a visit. And of course, my parents went on the visit, Subi. And to Dino's credit, and I have to preface all this by saying this was pre 9-11. So recruiting to the academy and the military changed significantly after 9-11. But at the time when I went on my visit to the academy, uh, I think Dino might have said maybe three words to me. He spent most of the time recruiting my parents. And he knew exactly what he was doing because my parents fell in love with the place. I mean, marching around in a uniform and yes, sir, no, sir. And the tradition and the the alums who had gone through there and the Eisenhowers and the MacArthur's and the Pattons. And he laid it on thick, man. And, you know, from my perspective, it was a chance to play division one basketball and it was an opportunity to be successful in life, to have that on my resume. Um, but even then I was a little bit dubious of, of my ability to succeed there. And if I really wanted to do it and, you know, it kind of harkens to a, a different time, but my, my parents were very aggressive and in, in saying, you need to really look at that. I, they didn't go so far as to say you're going there, but it was a base. It was basically what they were saying. Like, you don't have any other options even close to this. Both my parents were teachers, so we couldn't afford college necessarily. Um, and so the opportunity to go there for free uh, and to say that you, you have the, you know, the opportunity to be a, a cadet at the United States Military Academy was something that you know, outside of just the basketball opportunity was something that you know, ultimately I couldn't pass up. Chris, was there any apprehension or maybe self-doubt where you're saying to yourself, and again, you're, you're – your college experience is different than even that of another D1 athlete. Was there any self-doubt when you said, okay, let's go to Army, and you're thinking to yourself, well, can I, can I hack it, not just in the classroom, but the physical demands and the, the other demands of being um, a service member, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. The two things that concern me the most, I, look, the getting yelled at and the hazing and the physical component did not scare me in the least. My dad was hard on me growing up. I have thick skin. Um, and I have, I'm very self-confident. So like, it's going to take a lot to bring me down, you know, and, and again, and then the physical component, I'll, I'll go all day. It, it, you know, I'll, I'll put my stamina up against anybody. The things that concerned me, one were the academic component. I mean, I'm a smart guy, but I, I'm not the greatest worker in a classroom. Like I want to work on what I want to work on. Um, and so I think I thought my intellect would, I could certainly compete, but that I really want to go through the academic rigors of that place. That was the first concern. And the other was a social one, man. Like, again, I am not this like model person. I like, I'll get myself into some trouble. I love to party. I love to hang out. I love to have a good time. And I, and again, I'm not, I'm not the most gung ho, you know, living this rigid lifestyle type of a person. And so you know, do, do I really want to be calling my friends on a Friday night or a Saturday night and I'm in the barracks doing whatever it is we did in the barracks and my friends are out, you know, getting ready to go out and party and, and you know, the social component, the, the as a plebe, not getting to leave West Point your entire freshman year. Do I really want to go through all of that? So the, the academics and the social component were really the two things that kind of concerned me the most. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. You are a very physically fit individual. I can <laughs> I tell you that. I mean, you, you already poked fun at yourself because of your stature, but I did have to ask Chris, uh, you have a number of, uh, a great deal of success. Six one. We talked about getting open. How did you find that success on the basketball court? Yeah, it, um, 
It's a really good question. I mean, look, I, I I was a good player, you know, like that first and foremost. I I, I want I you to a, be totally unabashed. Say yeah, it with no. your chest, man. If look, I always say I say it more to my wife than anybody else. If I was six five six six, I'd have been a I'd have been a really good high major player. You know, it's just a fact of the matter. Um, and it wasn't even necessarily my height. It was more I just really was thin, and I wasn't all that strong. And by the way, I had an adversity to the weight room. Like I I just I would rather be out on the floor playing and. Um, and so even when I got to West Point and they're trying to put some weight on me, it just, it just never took. Um, but look, I was a good player. I could really score. I had a high IQ for the game and I played my ass off. You know, I, I think in, in look, you know, this, I think motor in anything, if you have a motor in anything you do, it's going to be an advantage. I mean, I, I remember going out recruiting when I was coaching and the first thing that stands out is, is you know, players who play hard, it stands out players who talk, communicate, who are natural leaders. So I had all the intangibles and, and not to mention the fact that I was a pretty, pretty decent player. And, and, um, and at that level, I mean, the Patriot league, which is a really good level, I don't want to marginalize it, but you can function at my size a little bit better there than you can in, in the big 12 over the Atlantic coast conference. Have you come across a player covering them, interviewing them, that kind of reminds you of yourself? Yeah, Juan Dixon, um, who was playing at Maryland when I played. And I kind of modeled my game after Juan Dixon because I ended up, Subi, I ended up moving to the two position. I started my first two years there as a point guard. And then they actually recruited my brother. And my brother ended up coming to the academy. He was two years behind me. And my junior year, they moved me off the ball. And it was twofold. One, they wanted to play my brother, who was a good player. But two... I was a scorer. I had a scorer's mentality. And um, I ended up, as you said, I ended up leading the league in scoring my last two seasons there. And Juan Dixon was kind of that player. He was undersized, He, but he played off the ball. And, you know, Army, our coach there ran a lot of similar stuff where he ran a lot of curls off of the pin downs. And so Juan Dixon was the guy, and I watched a lot of tape on him in the summers just to sort of model how do you get open? How do you get your shot off? How do you play at, at that type of a size? Juan Dixon, if I were to make a Mount Rushmore or a roster of players that were big reasons as to why I fell in love with college basketball, yes. he, he might be the starting two guard there. He might, he's, he's certainly got a spot. I, I don't know. Like I'm thinking of guys like him, Rashad McCants. If I even go with Steve Blake, if we stay with Maryland, um, Jimmer, all these guys, yeah. but Juan Dixon was, was a blast. So I could, I could definitely see a little bit of, of him and you as well. Um, Chris, I'm, I'm curious to know, and you had already mentioned this, so you're, you might be reading my notes here, but the, one of the first questions that I thought of when I was doing this prep in looking at the time you spent in school is that it did intersect with 9-11. So you were on campus pre-9-11 and also post-9-11, correct? Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about I don't know how to best phrase this, how that impacted you and, and being at a service academy like that. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's fundamental. And I always like to preface, you know, my sort of recruitment to, to West Point by, by saying that, you know, I, I kind of consider it a full, full disclosure in that I don't know if I would have made the same decision. I don't know if my parents would have encouraged me to go there as much as they did because part of the pitch from Dino Gaudio was that the military was not at war 
It was downsizing. Bill Clinton was actually allowing uh, people who had time left on their service to get out after like two years. And the commitment after you graduate is five years. So that was part of Dino's pitch. Like, look, come here, you'll do maybe two years of service, and then you'll be able to get out with an army degree. And then 9-11 happened my senior year. And I'm standing in class as those two towers were coming down. And I knew immediately, Subi, A, we knew it was terrorism. And B, I knew that we were going somewhere, that all of us were, were going somewhere. It changed in an instant. And there was part of me that by that point in my cadet career had been a little bit indoctrinated, which is to say, okay, let's do this. This is what we've been training for. Obviously, there was a level of fear. And then obviously, on the day those towers came down and in the aftermath, you didn't really know exactly what that was going to look like in terms of timeline and when deployment and all of that. But it was a surreal moment and a surreal day. And as I, as I like to tell people, it, it changed my outlook, not only in what I had done up to that point, but it changed my outlook the rest of my senior year. In that, I had a not to belabor this point. I don't want to talk too long. Please but belabor I, it, please. I had a um, so at at West Point, each uh, sports team has what they call an officer representative. So basically, it's like a colonel who is the liaison between the academy and the civilian coaches, and they travel on the road to make sure you're shaving and you're dressing appropriately and, and all of that. But they're also mentors, and I was screwing up there. I mean, I was, you know, I was not, I was in trouble. I was walking hours. I, I was somebody who always wanted to go against the system because I think I'm smarter than the system. And our officer representative, uh, his name is Daryl Williams. And he ended up being the superintendent. He just stepped down as a superintendent at the academy. So he became a general, really bright guy, had played football there, was a part of the, uh, had done work for the Obama administration during the Ebola outbreak knows five languages, just a brilliant man. And he comes to practice one day. And after practice, he comes up to me, says, I need to talk to you. I said, yeah, you got it, sir. Let's, let's do it. And he walks me up, you know, about 25 rows up into our arena. And we're sitting there and he says, listen, he says, you're screwing up. You're screwing up this opportunity. And he said, and you're not, you're not, it doesn't, you know, look, I'm going to not lose sleep over this. You're ultimately, you're not the only one that, that we have things like this with. He said, but let me tell you something. He said, in a few short months, you're going to be standing in front of 35 soldiers and they're going to be looking at you and you're going to be their platoon leader. And they're going to look at you and say, okay, sir, what's next? So real and, quick, Chris, real yeah. quick, Chris, was this pre 9-11 or like, was no, this sort of, okay, this is 9-11 that happened. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if, if he was saying he was putting out a scenario and it actually came to fruition. No, okay. this is, Sorry. this is, yeah, no, it was, it's perspective. You know what I'm saying? I think we all could use a little dose of perspective, especially young people. And he said, they're going to be looking at you and say, okay, sir, what's next? And you better have the answer. And where you're screwing up is all the answers. A lot of the answers are here at this Academy. And if you apply yourself and if you do things the right way, and you set a good reputation for yourself, you will be prepared to stand in front of 35 people who have their lives on the line based on your decisions. You'll be prepared 
to do that. And so it was it's sort of 9-11 and those types of conversations that I, I, you know, I finally got my act together and, you know, kind of finished out as best I could. What a story. I'll tell you what I've, I've come off practice courts. I think the, that this, this conversation pales in comparison. I was struggling with my AP physics class and I had that conversation <laughs> with my coach that pales in comparison to, to what you went through. And Chris, let me ask you, when you were standing in front of those soldiers, did you feel prepared? I felt prepared to be a humble yet in charge leader. And what I mean by that is I never let there be any doubt that I was the ultimate decision maker and ultimately the success or non-success was going to boil down to, to me. But I also understood that as a young Lieutenant, and I, and I don't know if you, you know, the dynamic or, or people listening, understand the dynamic, but lieutenants coming out of West Point, you know, I was 23 years old. The platoon I was going to, I mean, the the, the platoon sergeant, who was my right-hand man with that platoon, had been in the military for over 20 years. He was, he was almost into his 50s. Like, he had served a long time. He was a grizzled guy. He had been a part of Desert Storm. So for me to go in there and act like I had all the answers would have been really stupid. And by the way, like, other soldiers in, in the platoon, other non-commissioned officers had been in the military for five years, 10 years. So to go in there as if I knew all the answers would have been the wrong way. And so I always, you know, I took the tact of, you know, especially with my platoon sergeant, always answering his questions with a question. So what do you want to do, sir? Well, what do you think we should do? What would you do if you were me? And 95% of the time, Subi, I would go with what he had to say. Now, 5% of the time, I had another perspective. I had more of an academic perspective. I had more, I had been in meetings, maybe he hadn't been in. I had a different perspective, maybe in terms of how I wanted culturally our platoon to, to go. And so I would offer maybe a rebuttal. How about we, have you thought about this? And so I think in any organization, it doesn't matter if you're in charge or not. You've got to go in with the approach of how can, what tone am I going to have when I go in there? And so I felt confident that A, I, I was capable. B, I was a pretty good leader and sports was a big help in that, you know, being a captain of a team and all that. And C, I felt like I had an idea of the tone I wanted to take with the the platoon. And look, I didn't have all the tactical and technical answers, the equipment, all of that. I had a lot to learn. But when it came to managing people, I felt like I had a good game plan. Absolutely. So Chris, I want to ask this question and please let me know if it's out of bounds. Did it ever go through your head or do you think it goes through service academy athletes heads where they know what they're signing up for? Is there a part of you or anyone else in the back of their minds that's like, yeah, but I want to, I want to be an athlete. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want this. And, and then, you know, nine 11 happens or you're called into service and you're like, damn, there's still this part of me that just, I just want to be an athlete. I don't know if I'm, uh, if I'm conveying this question properly, but is there any part of you that said, I wish I could just was an athlete a hundred percent all the time, all the time. And you know, there's, there's a tad bit of resentment uh, as a result. 
you know, I, I remember being on, on my deployment to Iraq uh, on, a, on a few occasions, you know, in some, some serious situations, saying to myself, I just went to West Point to play basketball. And here I am in the Middle East with things around me that are in some cases severe. What happened? What am I doing right now? And then you got to shake yourself out of that and get over yourself and, and ultimately, you know, pursue the mission. But yeah, man, there, there absolutely was. There were times, look, I, I tell people all the time, I didn't hate every day at West Point, but I hated most of them, bro. Like I, I, I would call home and, you know, wanting to leave there. And, you know, again, I had strong parents and my, my, I would try to get my mom on the phone. My dad would grab the phone. He'd say, you're not leaving. Stop calling here. And he'd hang up the phone. And and again, it's not necessarily the right answer, but it was the answer for me. And, and it, it kind of shook me out of that. And so again, you got to have good people around you. You got to have tough people around you. And it's okay to have those moments. They're human moments. The question is, when you have those moments, it can't be compromising the mission. It can't be compromising the job. You've got to be able to shake yourself out of that, have your human moment, and then say, okay, I'm done with that. What's the next task? And I think I, I think despite my resentment and despite my insecurities and despite my sort of feeling sorry for myself moments, I was always able to transition to the mission, you know, ultimately. Very brilliant perspective. Chris, we've talked a little bit about some of what makes you a great leader, some of these different qualities. I would say you're a very flexible individual. And the reason I say that is even if we hearken back to my intro, which took my breath away, you have a vast uh, array of expertise. Okay. So tell me, Chris, how does one become so flexible? How do you transition from a player to a captain in, in the army, to a coach, to a media personality? Not a lot of people have worn as many hats as you. I think, yeah, it's, it's another great question, Subi. I, I think, um, first of all, you got to be well-read, man. Like, you know, I tell people in the media all, all the time, and this is, this applies to any job. You need to be able to speak, think, and write. I don't care if you're an economics major. I don't care if you're a communications major. I don't care if you're a physics major. Whatever it, job it is you want to do, you got to be able to speak, think, and write. And it's one of the reasons that in, in those various professions I have been able to be good is because I always believed it, it didn't matter what the job was. I was going to be good in the room and I was going to figure it out. And so when I left coaching, uh, you know, I didn't know necessarily that I wanted to get into broadcasting. Ultimately, that's where it led. I knew I would figure it out, you know, and Look, part of that's a little bit of ego and arrogance, which I think we all have to have. You want to be good, you got to have a little bit of an ego about yourself. But the other part is a level of humility. So when you walk in the room, don't walk in the room like you own the room. Walk in the room like you want to fit into the room and then allow your talents to do their work. Not every room I walked in, particularly in the military early on, was I an expert or was I the best there or the most capable? But I was going to figure out who was. I was going to attach myself to those people. And then I was going to, we were going to figure it out together. Um, and so that's where, and then you get into the coaching profession. When I got to Duke and there's Steve Wojciechowski and Chris Collins and obviously Coach K and Chris Carowell, those guys had played there. They had been coaching for a long time. Like 
look, there are things I can bring. There's a perspective that I had that they certainly didn't have. And there had been life experiences that I had owned that they hadn't owned. So I was able to walk into those, those rooms confidently, but also humbly. Um, and it's the same thing in broadcasting. Like I started out, everybody thinks, not everybody, but I think a lot of people assume I just arrived at ESPN doing games. No, man, I, I grinded out at CBS Sports Network doing Patriot League games for three years. Made a lot of mistakes. Love the experience. Um, and so now I feel prepared. I mean, that's the thing where, uh, you know, a lot of young people have to understand you don't arrive at the end without putting in the work. And by the way, if you put in the work, you are a lot more prepared to sustain and ultimately grow. And that's, I have believed in process. I, it's not just something I'd say in speeches or to you on your podcast. I believe in process because I am a manifestation of process. I am, I am a manifestation of what it means to put in the work, to prepare, and then ultimately when you get there, when it's time to perform, just say, let's do this. I am ready to, to crush this. Right. It's not necessarily just running through that last piece of ticker tape uh, at the end of the marathon. It's being able to sustain that and maybe run another marathon after that, right? right. Continue that journey. So I like, I like the way you, you laid that out. Remind me though, again, quick, Chris, you said speak, think, and write. Is that what it was? Yeah. You got to be able to speak, think, and write. Okay. So that's, that's, I'm going to put that on the same level as like a Valvano speech. When Valvano goes, you got to laugh, think, and cry. All right. <laughs> right. That's where the Don't thinking put it on intersects. That. Don't put it on that level, but yeah, it's a similar vein. So yeah, th those, those three that Valvano put, that's for, that's great advice for life. Yours will apply to jobs. All right. So that's when you said that I was just thinking of you at, at in front of a mic and we will get you in front of that mic at one point. <laughs> um, but so, I mean, this is all great insight into what makes you so flexible. And you mentioned your time at Duke and I want to zero in on that a little bit now because we haven't had many, many guests come on representing a blue blood program who's been on the bench of a national title winner. Um, you really only played one close game and, and maybe you can keep me honest there. It's a little different when you're on the bench, but as a viewer looking at the games, you only played really one close game in 2010 tournament. Uh, and it was the title yeah. game. Can yeah. you tell me what made that Butler team such a challenge? Yeah, it's a great question. Cause they, I'll tell you what, man, we tried to, I mean, it was, from Saturday after we beat West Virginia and the game prior to us was Butler beating Michigan state. So we knew our opponent from immediately in the locker room after beating West Virginia, coach K began this mantra of you have to understand how tough this Butler team is. You cannot look at them on film. You cannot look at them in layup lines and think that you are going to punk this team. This team is tough. They have pros on them. They are as well coached and as good defensively as any team we have played all season. And it wasn't just speak or coach speak. It was the reality. And it, look, I, I think I just covered the bulk of it. I mean, they Brad was, and obviously Brad Stevens was a juggernaut, but people didn't know necessarily at that point yet that he was going to be incredibly good coach, had that team incredibly well-schooled. Um, they were as tough defensively as any team we played that year. 
uh, as they were the best defensive team we played that year. And then, look, they had Gordon Hayward, who was an NBA – I think he was an NBA All-Star, but certainly a longtime pro. They had Shel- Shelvin Mack, who was really good, Matt Howard, um, Ronald Norrid, who was as good a, a college point guard as, as there was in the game for two years. I mean, it just – they had players also. Um, so I, I can say this honestly, we definitely did not underestimate that team. I think we got the point across and our guys were old enough to understand when we were trying to make a point. And so, you know, the, the closeness of that game had every bit to do with the quality of Butler. They were a tremendous team and I'm a Celtics fan. So I kind of feel bad where we, we pilfered Brad Stevens, but yeah. I feel like that was always going to be the next move. But Butler's sustaining some good success. Hopefully we can see them return back to that level in the Big East under Thad Mata. But it was an, one of the best college basketball games I've seen in in you know the history of watching it, obviously the title game. And it's funny, last offseason we had USC assistant coach Chris Capco on, and we actually talked about a – a uh, half-court heave. I think it was either in the Pac-12 tournament or maybe the NCAA tournament. And I wanted to get his view, his perspective, his description on that half-court heave. I hope you know where this is going, Mr. Spatola. Let's go. Uh, The Gordon Hayward shot. Mm -hmm. Take me through your mind, your eyes, everything. Yeah, I I still remember it as vividly as any any image uh, during my time there. Um, first of all, I remember vividly because you remember our benches are they're lowered at the Final Four, so Coach K is up on his little stool there, and Chris Collins is up there talking to him as Brian Zubek goes to the foul line, and we're up two, and Chris turns around and he's like got this look of shock on his face. And he screams to me and Wojo, he told him to miss it. He told him to miss it. And of course, Wojo and I are just stunned because everything's moving so like kind of quickly, except for the shot. So the free throw goes up. Zubek, like a good soldier, probably not the great greatest strategic move, uh, but coach is a Hall of Famer, so I don't want to question it. Um, Zubek, like a good soldier, misses the free throw. And, and uh, Hayward comes down with it. And I'm telling you what, Subi, the, first of all, the clock could not move any slower. I could not believe. And, and, and Zubek did a nice job because he steps up. He actually forces Hayward to have to kind of go around him a little bit. Kyle Singler gets leveled with a screen. And the clock was moving so slowly. I'm like, oh, my God, how much time is left on this clock? And that shot floated through the air as slow as anything. And I remember, and we were on the far end. And Wojo's standing right next to me, and we're kind of looking out. And that ball was in the air, I'm telling you, for five minutes, if it wasn't in the air for three seconds. And that thing caroms off. And it took a split second to be like, oh, my God, we're national champions. I had never, and this is the God's honest truth, I had never allowed it to sink in the idea of being a national champion, even as the director of operations. I felt, and that's the great thing about Coach K and his program, I felt it was as much mine as it was Shires and Singler's and Wojo's and Coach K's. Like, we had put so much, I had put so much into my job, you know, that the whole adage of do your job. I, I did my job, so I believed it was as much mine as anybody's, and I had never allowed the thought of being a national champion 
creep into my mind until that thing caromed off. And I immediately saw coach and I sprinted up the, onto the floor and he and I had an unbelievable embrace. And, but I remember it as vivid as any, any image in the game of basketball as I've ever had. Some tremendous detail there. I'm just thinking to myself, if I'm on the bench and Chris Collins looks back at me, he said, he told him to miss it. It's like, what the hell you want us to do? That's, well, that's you know what's funny? Decision. You know what's funny? A- 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 amen to that. And I'm, I'm thinking in my head, well, he's got to know something I don't. Not Collins, Coach K. Like, I'm thinking, all right, that's what the commander wants. 10-4, let's execute. And I'm thinking... It wasn't until after the game that it became sort of a conversation that I was like, yeah, I think my initial instinct there was right. Like, really? This is what we're doing? I, I love Coach's strong defense of it, um, you know, in the aftermath. Good for him. I, again, I think he would probably do it differently if he had it over again, but nonetheless. Well, so that just goes back to your point, right? When you're talking to a soldier, Coach K's got his, you know, 95% of the time you're in lockstep, but there's that other 5% where I'm sure Coach K is like, have you thought about this? Right. Oh, and he's got the ultimate trump card. We won the game. All right, Coach. You're right. We did. Yeah, he's got a piece of hardware to back that up. Huh? Uh, he's got five titles. Yep. He's, got, he's got five of them. So what I want to do now, Chris, pivot to a little bit of uh, today's landscape this season, because it's been a wild year. It's been a blast, and I cannot wait for conference tournaments, NCAA tournament. Uh, so I just want to hit you with some some quick hitters on what's been transpiring here recently. How about Buzz Williams and Texas A&M? I wasn't so sold on their at-a-conference schedule this year, but they're rolling a little bit here recently, and I think they're only a half game out behind Bama. They just beat Tennessee. Great win. Thoughts on on Buzz and and those guys are going to go dancing unless we see an epic collapse. No, they're going to go dancing and and thankfully after uh, Buzz went on his obnoxious rant uh, at the end after being left out last year, uh, a year in which they did not deserve to be in, uh, but they absolutely do deserve to be in this year. And look, he's won everywhere he's been, Buzz Williams. I mean, he's won obviously at Marquette, Virginia Tech, and now at A and M. He's a terrific coach. His teams share a, a similar DNA. Uh, they're hard playing teams, very good defensively. Um, you're not going to push them around. And he's got really good guard play this year. I mean, Wade Taylor, we knew it coming into the year. I think he had a little bit of a lull, you know, sort of end of non-conference play into the start of, of SEC play, but he's really come on and he's playing really, really well. So um, yeah, I mean, Buzz, Buzz does a great job. And, you know, it's been an interesting league this year, the SEC. And I think, I think A&M is unique in, in the respect that, um, again, I, I think they, they are really physical. They get after you defensively and they have a really talented player in Taylor who's, who's having a really good finish to the season. Last off season. I, w- I just had a lot of stream- streams of consciousness, I guess, and I just threw out this blog. I was like, you know what? There's a lot of good teams in the state of Texas, and mm-hmm. I included Texas A&M. I included Texas Tech, who's coming all- along a little bit, uh, but I, I thought they were going to have Fardaz, Amec the whole season. Then you got Texas, then you got Houston, then you got Baylor. I don't think it's terribly far-fetched to see maybe three or four teams from Texas in the Elite Eight. No, there's not. Uh, I think coaching has a lot to do with it. I think those schools have hired well. You know, obviously Kelvin is is one of the best. Um, and look, I, I think Mark Adams is a good coach, but Chris Beard's DNA is is certainly still at Texas Tech, and it's definitely still at Texas. 
Um, so I, you know, I think coaching is a, is a part of that. And I, look, I think there's a lot of money, man, at, at, at those schools. And I think the NIL has made an impact. It certainly made an impact getting a Mac, uh, and getting some of the pop Isaacs, getting some of those guys they have on their roster this year. Texas has a brand new facility, the Moody center. It's beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the Fertitta center is, is relatively new. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. And there's a, a wealth of talent in that state and it's not like all those schools are, are strictly recruiting the state, but it's, um, there's a wealth of talent in that state. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point you bring up though. Final four in Houston too, I believe. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, you're our ACC guy. I'm going to, I'm going to label you as our ACC guy because you spent time there at Duke. I feel like I've been defending the ACC because everyone's saying it stinks. I don't necessarily think that it it stinks. Um, I think it's more competitive than I think folks are giving it credit for. What say you about how would you diagnose the ACC? I don't think the league stinks. I think it has what I'm calling an analytics problem. So much now of ref, these referendums we drive on teams or leagues, Subi, is based on what the analytics are telling us. And it's one of my problems with people in our business. They don't have to watch or they don't think they have to watch games anymore. They just tell you, well, they're first in offensive efficiency. Okay, well, why are they first in offensive efficiency? But that's a whole nother discussion for another day. I, I think the thing with the ACC is I do think the league is better this year than it was last year. I think there is a greater number of teams that can win in the NCAA tournament. The problem for the league from, in terms of its perception is the bottom of the league is terrible. Louisville's not good. Georgia Tech's not good. Notre Dame's had a bad season. Uh, you, you, you go down the line. What ends up happening is because you those teams are bad, their analytics are bad, and you end up having to play those teams, it's going to have an impact not only on your analytics, but the analytics of the league. And it's why the league right now is seventh uh, in terms of conferences nationally, it's behind the Mountain West, the ACC. And it, part of it is the, the league for two years straight has had a bad non-conference. Like, for example, the, the, the Big 12, I heard Billis throw out this number the other day. The Big 12 won like 83% of its non-conference games. Some of those against other Power 5 leagues and teams. That's a great non-league performance so that when you get into your league – it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You end up helping yourselves just by playing those games. The Atlanta Coast Conference for two years running had a brutal non-conference. So then they get into the league and you could play a Louisville at home, win that game and go down in the net. That's a problem. And so I think a lot of what's driving the analysis of the ACC is the analytics. And unless you watch NC State, Unless you watch Pittsburgh, you don't know, right, Subi? I mean, you don't know that those teams, what those teams are capable of doing. I'm glad you said that because I was looking at, and I think it is driven by the numbers like you had mentioned, but I look at a team like Pitt. We should be celebrating Pitt. They haven't been to the tournament in, I don't know, like a, a few years. We should be celebrating even a Clemson who's, oh, they're killing me right now. I wanted to see them in the tournament, but wonderful start. They have 20 wins. We should be celebrating them. Um, you know, Miami, I'm I'm a sucker for this Canes team, and I want to take them to the Final Four. And it's interesting you brought it up, Chris. If if this conference is better than it was last year, and I think it was getting the similar flack, you look up and you say, "Well, wait a minute, Miami was in the Elite Eight, and half the field of the Final Four was ACC." Yeah, right. 
Like yeah. it, it can't be that terrible. I don't think that's what I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I'm having a tough time reconciling. Yeah. I, I think, look, there is a, a giant difference. And this is where I think the coaches in the league, they need to stop using performance in the NCAA tournament. Uh, they're mutually exclusive performance in the tournament and number of teams in the tournament or analysis by the committee, they are different. And, and I think the the league has an analytics problem, but as far as teams getting better as the, like, for example, West Virginia is on the bubble right now, West Virginia in the non-conference was only okay. And they are clinging for dear life to their Pittsburgh win, which happened in the second game of the season. Now, Pittsburgh has four transfers in their starting lineup. It was always going to take Pittsburgh some time to develop and get better. If Pittsburgh and West Virginia played today, I would pick Pittsburgh. But because, you know, so that's where the timing, unfortunately, and if if you don't like the process, then we got to change the process. But unfortunately for the league, the ACC, the committee uses the full body of work. So if, if you become better, and the reason, and, and by playing conference games in this time of the year, we have no idea if these teams in the ACC have gotten markedly better than they were during the non-conference. Um, and so it's it, a lot of it has to do with the numbers. And and I think, you know, again, that's where the ACC has got to figure that out in, in the months of November and December. What a world we're living in. I'm over here defending the ACC from being <laughs> and saying it's underrated. I never thought growing up. <laughs> Right. I would have to do that. Yet here we are. Um, Chris, a few other questions I had for you here. Of course, there's some horrifying developments and details emerging out of Tuscaloosa. uh, And obviously, we want to keep the victim first in mind. But I'm I host a college basketball podcast. I'm not a a legalese expert. So I want to ask you as someone who's been on a bench and who's been who's played for a team when these developments come out and these details maybe cast a cloud over the entire season. And I, again, I don't want to sound like I'm being crass, but they're having a wonderful season. How does that impact the team? Well, I think to be determined, uh, it's hard to know because I, I, I'm not necessarily in that locker room. I will say, say, tell you from my experience, I think organizations look to leadership in times of crisis. And if you want to be seen as trustworthy, everybody wants to have trust in their organizations. Well, the first thing you have to do is, is you have to be trustworthy as a leader. And I think the most disturbing thing about this Alabama situation is the way in which the leadership at Alabama has handled it. Um, look, I, I think ultimately this case will pivot and, and ultimately the future of Nate Oates, perhaps the AD, Greg Bird, I think pivots on the, the the reality of whether or not they knew that Brandon Miller uh, transported that gun to that scene. And if they did know and continued to play that young man, we got a serious problem. I think we already have a serious problem. But to answer your question about the locker room, it depends on what the players knew. And if the players knew that Brandon Miller brought that thing to the scene, or that the leadership handled this thing the way they did. And by the way, this is not going away. I mean, players are going to get questions. Coaches are going to continue to get questions. If, if, if they know that the leadership did not handle this thing well, then the foundation has the potential to crumble. And, you know, again, I, I think there's a part of young people that can sort of be tunnel vision and just let's lock in on the task at hand. 
But their coach is going to be under siege here, Subi, uh, for the next through the tournament. And I think ultimately how those players respond to that and, and ultimately how that locker room, you know, ultimately evolves from this point forward. I, I don't know if any of us can know the answer to that. Yeah, I think that's very well put, Chris. And of course, we're going to have to just wait and see what happens. Hey, let's pivot. Let's get you on out of here. I know we're running up against time, but I want to give you some quick hitters, have a little fun here. Uh, so let me preface this next question by saying I – uh, spoke to my father-in-law, future father-in-law, by saying, hey, you know, I'd love to marry your daughter. I know everyone <laughs> asks you what Coach K is like as a father-in-law. Can you tell us, if, first of all, let me start with this. Did you ask Coach K's permission to marry his daughter? I did. I, uh, I flew down. Uh, it was during my basketball season. And, you know, you, during Christmas break, you get like three days, two days, something like that. But I, I used my, my Christmas break uh, to fly down. And uh, and ask him if uh, if if I could marry her. He was uh, he was a little bit tepid in his response. He's uh, he's always been in my corner, but he was a little bit tepid, uh, which was ironic. I found because he and Mickey, his wife, got married on graduation day at West Point, which wasn't even the design Jamie and I, my wife and I, had. But we were certainly going to wait. But um, but I did. I asked him, and uh, and the rest is history. Tepid, you know, I got that response as well because my father-in-law, he's a very straightforward, uh, no bones about it, man. He's folding his clothes. He's putting them, putting up a shirt on a hanger. And I quote, uh, well, you got to live with her. So I was like, yeah. I, I just need to direct yes or no. Uh, that's not a no, is it? No, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. I didn't exactly know the answer either. And, uh, and my wife was, um, my wife and I, I've known my wife since she was 14 years old. I've known my wife the majority of my life. And and so there's really been no sort of secret. So she knew I was going to ask her dad. There was no secret that I was going to propose to her. Um, and she was kind of on the stairs in the house when I was having this conversation with her dad. And I kind of, after I asked him, I kind of went to her upstairs. I was like, I don't know if he said yes. Like, do you have any sort of interpretation of what that was that we just had down there? Oh, uh, you need, you need like a Shashevsky Rosetta stone. Just <laughs> right. enter it in there and be like, was that a yes or a no? <laughs> um, hey, how about the best stadium or venue or event that you have covered? Uh, I'm talking about the best game. Like, yeah, give us the details. I'll give you two. And just in terms of, of games I've called, and I'll take Cameron Indoor out of it, um, just for – because these other two were pretty good, man. I, I called two games last year. One was at Fog Allen. It was the first time I had been there. And they were – it was the resumption of the rivalry, the border war with Missouri. And I have to tell you, I was blown away, A, by the, the facility, Fog Allen, is everything everybody tells you it is. It is all of those things and more. And the environment that day was as loud a place as I had, I had ever been. Now, the game was terrible. They blew out Missouri. It was the loudest place I had been until later last season, I did Chris Beard's return to Texas Tech as the head coach of Texas. And it was what I describe as a violent crowd. And I mean that metaphorically. I compare it to the Maryland crowds when we used to go play at Maryland when they were in the ACC. 
And sometimes they were literally violent, but like, I'm just metaphorically speaking, violent, like sweating and just obscenities pouring out. He beard when he was coming out of the locker room, had to have about seven cops around him. And I'm telling you, Subi, it was as loud as any place I've ever been. It was what college basketball just is, should be, and is meant to be. Uh, it was phenomenal. And so those two, those two specific events are the two best I have, I have been in arena for. Certainly not the first time we've heard fog by any player or coach or, or anything like that. Uh, the Texas Tech game, I remember that. I think I, I keep me honest here. I think it was a big Monday game, but I even remember when the bus rolled up. Yeah. Uh, the Longhorns bus rolled up. These folks, the fine folks of Lubbock, were ready to greet yeah. Chris Beard. Well, it was so funny because I, the game was on ESPN2 and I was calling it, which eventually it got to a point. Like, I don't look that far ahead on my schedule, but eventually I got to the point where I was like, oh my God, I'm calling that game. Why in the world am I calling that game? Like, why is Billis not here or Dick Vitale? Like, why am I here? So, I mean, I felt very lucky to be there that night. It was obviously historic. And I mean, crazy to say that it, it was the only time that Chris Beard returned to Texas Tech as the Texas coach. So... It was a hell of a night, man. It was one of those old – and Rick Flair was in the building. I got a photo with him. I, it was a night I'll always remember. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, how about, as a player, toughest environment that you've had to play in? So Cameron would be at the top of that list. Um, when they started chanting, warm up the tank instead of warm up the bus at the end of the game, I was like uh, – yeah, and by the way, we had to play a good team. We had to play that team in 2001 that won a national championship. So, I, you know, I had to match up against Jay Will and – um, but that place, it was the first time I had been a camper there. That's how I met my wife. I, my dad uh, would drive my brother and I down to Coach K's camp every summer. And so I had been in the building, but I had never played there. And um, it's just so loud. And they would, they would be out there an hour and a half before the game, you know, just giving you a hard time. And then my wife was, she was my girlfriend at the time, was sitting behind the Duke bench, you know, supporting her father. But also I'm out there playing and we were getting blown out and, uh, that was by far, it was, it was both really cool to be playing in there, but it was also humiliating at the same time. That's an interesting dichotomy there. It is. And it was. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm an Arizona grad. I wish maybe we had known each other. I would have picked your brain to see if they could have, if we could have gotten any sort of advantages in that Oh one title game yeah. uh, for Arizona. But Hey, that Duke team was remarkable. Yeah. Jay Williams. That's uh, right. Battier, what a what a squad that was. Um, who is the toughest player that you've had to scout against as a coach or even lace them up against? Who's like the one guy? Yeah. So the toughest player, I'll, I'll go back to Jay Will, although I matched up. We played Ohio State when I was at Army, and I had to match up against a guy named Scooney Penn. I don't know if you remember Scooney. He's a Massachusetts guy. He sure is. Yeah, Salem, Mass. And, That's right. Um, Scoot, Jay Will's the best player I've played against, although we, we used to play some pickup games uh, when Kyrie was coming back from his injury and we were trying to get him in shape. And I was actually a, a one of the best versions of myself as a basketball player because I never got to go play pro. But when I was at Duke, I really got myself in a pretty good shape. And so I was playing really, really well. And, and Kyrie was incredibly talented. But um, But the best player when I was at Duke – the best player in my time there that, or the toughest player that we had to scout against, which the two could probably be the same, 
was Tyler Hansborough. There was no player in my time at Duke who consumed a scattering report more than Tyler Hansborough. We spent more time scheming how to guard him on the block, to keep him off the glass, um, to get back in transition because Ty Lawson was their point guard uh, who was a problem also. But, you know, Tyler would find position early. He'd get the ball. I mean, just nobody. And we played against a lot of great players in my time at Duke. There was nobody who who took more time or we took more time preparing for than Tyler Hansborough. Those are some incredible names. Legitimately a psycho, psycho team, man. They don't, yeah. they don't call them that for no reason. Uh, Chris, you've been so gracious with your time. Thank you so much. I'm going to get you out of here. And we're going to bookend this interview like I promised we would. We yeah. call this Bring Them Up on Stage. Is there anyone that you can point me in the direction to where I can Instagram DM them like I did you, uh, touch base, and, and really essentially bug them to get them on and share some amazing stories like you've done? Anyone that you have in mind? Does it have to be a basketball guy? No, it does not. So I'm going to give you a, a, a guy that I work with a lot. He does our, our Sirius XM radio show, a guy named Roddy Jones. I don't know if you've talked to Roddy or if you know who Roddy is. Roddy was a, um, he was a football player at Georgia Tech. And Roddy's been, uh, he's done, he, I think he did, uh, he was a carpet salesman when he graduated from Georgia Tech. He is now a rising star in the college football broadcast profession. He works for ESPN. Uh, he is fantastic. And I, you know, I relate, you know, Dallin Cuff, Roddy and I are similar in that we didn't play at, at power. Well, Roddy did, but we, we, he wasn't a pro. Dallin played at Columbia. I played at Army. But I think we have, we share a kinship because A, we're, we're very, we work very hard at what we do and we want to be good, not just at sort of the knowledge of what we do, Subi, but we want to be good at the presentation. The three of us understand that this is an entertainment enterprise. So we share that DNA. Uh, Roddy's incredibly smart. He's incredibly uh, articulate, thoughtful, and he's bright. And these are the, these are the people that I gravitate to. And he's a really good teammate, um, which is very important to me. I, I want to be surrounded by people who are, who are good teammates. Uh, and so I would throw Roddy in that category. So you absolutely have to talk to Roddy Jones. He's he's one of the best. Roddy Jones, you are next on the list, my friend. And Chris Patola, thank you so much, like I said, for spending some time. Incredible detail on all of your stories. This was a real treat. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the college hoop season. I absolutely will, Subi. This was a pleasure. All of mine. I, I appreciate you asking me. And, uh, and I, I enjoyed sharing the time with you, brother. Okay, we want to thank Chris Patola one more time for jumping onto the program. What a blast that was. I really did enjoy it. I, I, I'm a very hairy guy, all right, people? I have a ton of hair on my forearms, and every single one of those hairs was sticking up. When he was describing when he got the news and when he saw the towers go down during 9-11, um, some of his words regarding leadership and what we can apply to everything outside of, of, of sports and what we can apply to life. I, I wanted to break out a notepad and jot them down. I thought they were brilliant from Chris. So really appreciate him spending some time with us. Open invite, Chris, anytime you want to jump onto the program. And of course, we will reach out to Roddy Johnson uh, to get him on. And maybe we just carve out a niche here with the ESPN guys. We had Dallin Cuff. Spatola, 
might have to reach out to Sean Farnham next, even though he's a UCLA guy. We might have a little bit of a niche here. Um, FS1 guys, respond to my DMs, please. But Chris Patola, thank you again for jumping on. Let's go ahead, get on out of here on some good things. The best thing I saw this week, no brainer. And honestly, it really sucks. It really, really sucks that I'm bookending such a magnificent, fun interview with topics about gun violence. But here we are. I had to open the show regarding the Alabama case. And now, even though it's a good thing, um, it is related to gun violence. And the best thing I saw this week, Michigan State beating Indiana, we're all Spartans. Spartan strong. That's a real thing. I think we were all rooting for Michigan State here. They do get the job done against the Hoosiers. It was their first game back in the Breslin Center since the shooting. And I do believe it was a day after students returned to class. So from an emotional perspective, from the perspective of East Lansing and their community needing a win, this was huge. From a strictly basketball perspective, which I know is secondary, maybe even tertiary, also huge. Uh, beating a top-ranked opponent, a top 15, top 20 opponent in Indiana, getting that done, soli- really solidifying themselves in the field. I don't think it was ever really a, a question, but if Michigan State lost out, then it would have been a question. They would probably would have been on the wrong side of the bubble, but they have a great win here towards the end of February. And of course we'll see Izzo's teams dancing. And this is what they do. This is what Izzo led teams do. They may recently, at least they may lose a couple games where you, you scratch your head and you question their effort and you question maybe even their talent, but they always Michigan state is one of those teams where they will always be a threat. No matter who you are, you remember Duke with Zion and RJ Barrett lost to Michigan state. And I think a lot of people were shocked at that. I don't know why we're shocked anymore. Now I'm not saying Indiana is as good as that Duke team, but Michigan state and Tom Izzo will take on any, anyone in the entire country. And I won't be shocked if it's close, especially as we approach this time of year. So hats off to Michigan state, the East Lansing community, all of Sparty, uh, Sparta, I guess I could say, for a great win, and I hope they're healing properly there. Let's go ahead and get on out of here, though. Uh, we want to thank Chris Patola one last time for jumping on and sharing his stories, and we want to thank you for listening. We will catch you next time here on Theater and College Hoops.